from Jesus, we're in the school of prayer, we're learning how to pray the Lord's Prayer. Uh, God is coming alongside us, kind of like an arborist would come by a tree. Uh, the tree is already growing in a certain direction, and the arborist will come and kind of trim it so it grows in a, a different direction, or maybe just shape it a little bit. Or as we said, like a voice instructor. The disciples are watching the, the disciples of John pray, and they're kind of intrigued that this rabbi is teaching his disciples how to pray. So they ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus teaches them the prayer that we know as the Our Father. Now there's a lot of ways that you can break down the Lord's Prayer. We're breaking it down as follows. And I'm going to try to put this on a slide each week so it locks into our mind. The person of God, Our Father. The promises of God, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The provision of God, give us to stay our daily bread. The pardon of God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And a protection of God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is a pattern that can allow us to pray, uh, shape and guide our prayers. And so today we're looking at that second part, the promise of God. Now, I want to give you the, probably the most important thing I can say today, I'm going to say in the first few minutes. And it's the big principle I want us all to lock in. And it's very simple. It's two, two words. God first. It's pretty obvious from the prayer, isn't it? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Jesus is showing us the importance of God first in our prayer lives. In the Western world, there's a lot of narratives that run through the Western world. Things that kind of shape the way we think. And one of those is that you should do everything you can to be as happy as you possibly can. In other words, individual happiness is the most important thing in your life. We kind of have this anthropocentric feeling that everything in the world should revolve around us. So we make almost all of our decisions in light, probably more than we would admit, in light of the question, what's going to make me most happy? Who will I marry? What would make me most happy? What job will I take? What job is going to make me happiest? Who will I sleep with? What would make me happiest? What will I do with the rest of my life? What will make me most happy? And this is even kind of leaked into Christian circles. This is even how sometimes we interact in church. What song do I like, right? What sermons, what kind of preacher do I like? And a lot of times it comes down to what is the thing that makes me most happy? The modern Western narrative is you do what makes you really happy. You can see right off the bat, Jesus, even even a cursory glance at the Lord's Prayer, teaches us we're not praying for our own happiness first and foremost, are we? It's a God-first prayer. Even a cursory glance of the Lord's Prayer teaches us Jesus is telling us to reorient our lives and center it upon God. There are actually six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. The first three that we had on the screen earlier have to do with God. The last three have to do with people. That seems to pattern itself after the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? Where they start off about God, then it goes to people. Jesus says, when you pray, pray first about God. And that's how all the great prayers in the Bible move. When David prayed before all the assembly there in the book of Chronicles... Blessed art thou, O God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory. There's so many things that David wanted to ask God for on behalf of Israel, but it was God first. How about this? 
Hezekiah the king. Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrians. There are some pressing things to ask God to do. Hezekiah prays, O Lord God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, thou art God, thou alone, kingdom of earth, you have made heaven and you have made earth. Boy, I imagine there are people listening to Hezekiah pray saying, aren't there more pressing things that we should say to God? (laughs) We're surrounded by an army. We're about to be invaded. Even when your life is about to fall apart, the most important thing you can pray is God first. Our Father who is in heaven, Jesus is teaching us a theocentric model of prayer where we are not at the center of our prayer lives, but God and Christ is at the center of the prayer life, where our prayer life doesn't revolve around what makes us most happy, though I don't doubt God is concerned about our happiness, and it doesn't even revolve around what we need at that moment, though God is going to take care of our needs, that's in the prayer too, but it's God first. Jesus shows the importance of a God first prayer life. The prayer that Christ gives begins with God. You're probably familiar with the term geocentric versus heliocentric. These are the two models historically. And for most of the world's history, at least what we know of modern, modern even in ancient history, people believed in a geocentric universe. They believed the sun and the planets revolved around the earth, that everything revolved around the earth. And in 1543, it was Copernicus who came out with the idea that it's a heliocentric universe. In other words, it's the sun that's at the center of the solar system here, and the planets, the earth, the the star, they revolve around the sun. Jesus is calling us to make that kind of revolution, a Copernican revolution in our prayers, where when you and I kneel down to pray, usually the first thing that comes out of our mouths is, Lord, get me out of the situation. Or, God, I need a raise. Lord, help that person to fall in love with me. God, help that person to fall out of love with me. You know, whatever it is you feel like you need at that moment. And God says, no, the most important thing we can do when we go to prayer is put God first in our prayer lives. If there's nothing else we get from the Lord's prayer, this is a good principle for us to apply. That whether you stand and pray, kneel and pray, lay down and pray, sit and pray, all these postures are found in Scripture. But the first things that come out of our mouths are about God, about His glory, about His greatness, about His power, and about His love. I would go so far as to say the great prayers in the Bible, they take an inventory of God before they even get to their own needs. And that's what we learn in our Lord's Prayer. I'll tell you why this is important. Let me give you four thoughts, and these are just kind of ticking these off. Uh, Number one, uh, if you're going to pray like this, by the way, it's going to be countercultural. It's going to be countercultural. A prayer life like this that puts God first, it is, I would say, boring at best to the modern world, probably all the way to being unintelligible. It just sounds like a lot of ancient gibberish to a lot of people. Because again, our world does not really appreciate the value of centering our lives on God. We center our lives on ourselves, right? Number two, just something to think about here. When we center our prayer lives on God, you're going to find it to be spiritually encouraged and psychologically therapeutic. And I'll tell you why. Because we are taught that the way you find happiness in life is to focus on your own happiness, to just do the things that make you most happy. Can I ask you a question? How's that working for our culture? Is that working? Not working very good. 
You know, psychologists are starting to come out and they're telling us that this is a postmodern trap. That in fact, the more you focus on your own happiness, probably the more you actually undermine your own happiness. And that's because you were not created to pursue your own happiness. You were created for something much loftier than that, mainly the glory of God. That's, of course, the Christian thought. That's a postmodern trap. This is why praying with God first. This is why the Lord's Prayer gives us that outward, upward focus first, where we're focusing on God. We're, we're giving our attention to God. We are in an unselfish posture right to begin with. I'm not saying that when you pray God first, all your anxieties go away. But I will say that kind of posture that puts God first in your life does a lot to push back against your stresses and your anxieties in the real world by focusing on God. Another thought here, the Lord's Prayer, by putting God first, encourages us to reshape and reorder our lives on God. And as we pray, not only are we praying these words, but our heart begins to come in line with that. We start to actually live what we're praying. That we're not just living for our daily bread. We're living for the glory of God. And we start to see God in light of our problems. Kind of like David when he faced Goliath. Where everybody was afraid of Goliath, but David had a God-first kind of prayer life. He had a God-first orientation to his life. And Goliath was still big, but God was much bigger. Or maybe like Hosea, whose marriage was falling apart, but he had a God perspective on his marriage. Or maybe even like Moses, who had to choose a certain allegiance. What family will he follow? Well, he has a God-first perspective. And so we can be more like John the Baptist. He must increase, I must decrease. As we pray God first, our heart starts to push itself in line with that. Here's the last thought I want to give you before we move on. When you pray God first, you are living your cosmic design. This is what we were created to do. So this week, a week, two, maybe ago, I had a, a maybe 13-year-old boy ask me a really good question. He said, I got a lot of questions for you. And they were good questions. They're like high-level philosophical questions. And one of those was, he said, why does God demand that people worship him? That sounds so arrogant. Uh, why does God tell people, you have to worship me, you have to center your life on me? It's a question I've asked. By the way, that's a question most Westerners ask. Most people in the East, that doesn't even occur to them. But it's an important question for us in the West, right? To the Western ear, when we say God demands you worship him, that sounds very arrogant. I understand why. But what's not being considered is your cosmic design. God created you to worship him. And when God commands that you put him first in your life, that is him looking out for your best interest. Because that's why you were created, you see? When you put God first, you are fulfilling your cosmic design. You are doing the thing you were created to do. Do you now see why seeking your own happiness undermines your own happiness? but seeking God actually increases your happiness? This is why C.S. Lewis said, the problem with people is not that they seek their own happiness, they don't seek enough of it in the right place. He said, we settle for things like mud pies in the slums instead of holidays at the beach. And what he meant by that is we find our greatest happiness in God as we seek Him and put Him first in our lives. Um, 
I don't know if you've ever taken an old dog. I mean an old dog, you know, 14 years old, 10 years old, something like that. Maybe they got those hip problems. Take like a yellow or a black lab. And you take that dog outside. And you ever ever bring him into the woods and take him off the leash? And I mean, just let him go. Just let him go. And he starts to sniff around a little bit. And you, you start watching that dog run. They just start darting through the woods. I mean, that 14-year-old, within five minutes, looks like a puppy. <laughs> jumping over the log, sniffing this, sniffing that. And, and you know, I've watched, I've watched dogs do that in the woods. And I sit there and say to myself, it's almost like they were created for this purpose. <laughs> to run wild through the woods like this. There's, they, what is it? When a dog is chained up, when a dog is confined, when any animal is, they're, they're constricted. But wow, when they're out in the wild, there's something so beautiful and natural to that, isn't there? There's, you almost say to yourself, they were created for this purpose. And so it is with us. When we worship God. This God-first idea, this is not just theological jargon. This is your cosmic design. I can't tell you how many people, and I'm not saying this happens to everybody, but it happens to a lot of people, where they're very miserable people. They're constantly angry. They're upset. All these problems in life. And they come to know Christ. And they confess Jesus as Lord. And almost overnight, there is a joy that comes into their lives. I'm not saying all their problems go away, but there's an amazing joy that comes into their lives. You know what happened? For the first time in their life, they are living their cosmic design. That is what they were created to do, to be in fellowship with God. When Jesus says, when you pray, pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He is saying, you live your cosmic design when you pray like this. You and I were not created to first and foremost seek our own happiness, but seek the glory of God. All right, now let's go right to the specifics here. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You mind if I take a little bit of a running start at this one, okay? First of all, I'm going to take you to a very strange place to make a point here, okay? I'm going to give you a line from the movie. You tell me the movie, okay? You ready? I want to see how well we do. We're going to start really easy, okay? May the force be with you. Yeah, yeah, that one's too easy, I know, okay? All right, all right, how about this one? To infinity and beyond. That's Toy Story, right? Very good. If you build it, they will come. Build the dreams. I'll go a little older now. You can't handle the truth. Come on. A few good men. Very good. Very good. All right. I'm going to make an offer he can't refuse. All right. Oh, how about this one? You ready for this? A boy's best friend is his mother. Oh, somebody got it. What was it? Psycho. <laughs> Yeah, and you're like, oh, okay, I can't believe it. Very good. All right, now, why do I take you through that kind of exercise? Here's why. If I give you those lines by themselves, they mean almost nothing. But in the context of the broader narrative, don't they spring to life? I mean, when I say, like, a boy's best friend is his mother, you're like, but when I say psycho, you're like, oh, yeah, you know? Like, you know where you're going with that, right? That's crazy. See, uh, you need to understand the broader narrative before you can understand what a single line is doing. The reason phrases like, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, don't mean that much, is we're not thinking about them in light of the broader idea in Scripture. So we have to understand the whole story 
You're not going to understand this is an offer you can't refuse unless you understand the whole story of the Godfather. You can't handle the truth as a nice one-liner, but in the context of a few good men, wow, that line springs to life. And I suggest if we consider the broader story of Scripture, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, will spring to life for us. So let's talk about the broader story of Scripture. I got on the board behind us here. First of all, Scripture starts off with creation. God creates this world, right? He creates the world. He creates what we call a shalom in the world, a harmony. Shalom is not just a word that means peace. It's a word that means harmony. Think about a symphony where all the instruments are playing together, where they all come together to play the same song. And there in the Garden of Eden, everything is working together to bring glory to God. Adam, Eve, the animals, everything's coming together and playing like a symphony as it brings glory to God. By the way, that Garden of Eden... When Adam is told to till the ground, then they're going to create cities and towns. What's supposed to happen is this. They glorify God in the garden, and as the garden expands, the whole earth is full of his glory. glory. See how that fits together? But that doesn't happen, right? Because Adam and Eve sin, and that's the second movement, the fall. This is where creation is torn asunder. Adam and Eve commit cosmic treason. Milton calls this paradise lost. And the harmony is disturbed. The harmony is shaken. So now after the fall, after Adam and Eve sin, there are things that really work well in the world, but they don't work like they're supposed to work. So it's kind of like what happened to me a couple weeks ago with my van. I had a belt break, you know, and it's doing the sputtering thing and it's stalling and stopping. I'm driving the van and I'm thinking, there's something amazing here. I'm actually driving a vehicle But this is not the way it was created to drive. You know, it's sputtering and it's stopping and it's stalling and it's not working. And so it is with the universe. There are things that are working really well, but there's something that's not right. So you look at a couple that's in love and you say, there's something so beautiful about that couple that's in love. And yet there's domestic violence. There's something so beautiful about a hobby. But what about when that hobby consumes us? Or what about work? You know how powerful and special you feel when you finish a task? And yet how frustrating work can be. There's something so right in the world because God created a beautiful world, but there's something. It's not working the way it's supposed to work. The car is sputtering. Things are out of control. And the third movement is restoration. And that's the cross and then the crown. Redemption and restoration. And I could sum, if I was going to sum this up, I would do it out of the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. I have this verse for you. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Now get this line which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite. All things in him, heaven and things on earth. Now let that word lock in. He is going to unite all things in heaven and earth. That word unite is a Greek word that means bring it all together. Anakephale, it's a beautiful word. It's a word that the great Greek philosophers, Socrates and Plato, they would use this word when they wanted to conclude their point and like bring everything to a head, make that one grand point. That's what the word is here. 
This is God's plan and redemption. He's going to unite all things in Christ. All the things that have been broken are going to be fixed in Jesus and going to be redeemed by Jesus. This is creation regained and creation restored. It kind of looks a little bit like the miracles of Jesus, only on a global scale, where Jesus does healings and he feeds the 5,000 and he takes care of needs. Take that and just put it all over the universe in all places. Creation regained. That's the story of the Bible. All that was lost at the fall is regained in Jesus. And you see that in the book of Revelation. Remember what I said about the garden? All things are going to work together for God's glory and they're going to fill the holy earth. That's what we see in the book of Revelation. Creation regained. Now, with that story in mind, what does it mean? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on it. You know what it means? These three ideas reflect God's promise of restoration. They are reflective of his restoration. The original creation, the name was God, was hallowed. His kingdom, he was ruling and reigning in Eden. And his will was being done. When we pray these three things about God, we are praying for creation to be regained, creation to be restored, that all that was lost in the fall in the Garden of Eden is restored now in Jesus, and we are longing and hungering for that to happen, that that could not happen soon enough, and for God's plan to come to fruition. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled even John, who says, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. The heart of the Christian in this prayer is longing for God to do his restorative work. And I want to give you three ways that we long to see God's restorative work. Three ways in the prayer here as we pray God first. The first idea is this. We want to pray that all people, this is the original intent of the creation, all people would honor the name of God. All people. Now, hallowed be thy name. Wow, that sounds strange to the modern ear, right? We don't use that word much. I think the last time I heard this was when I read a speech by Abraham Lincoln. You know, I think it was Gettysburg, where he called it hallowed ground, you know, or something like that. So what does the word hallowed mean? It means holy, sacred, worthy of a certain respect. I would translate hallowed loving respect that all people would have a loving respect towards God. The name of God here, as you know, our names today are usually just because you like that name. You named your son Joe because either your father was Joe or you like the name Joe. But in the Bible, a lot of these names have meaning. Adam and Eve mean something. Abraham is the father of many. You know, Peter means rock. The name of God sums the character of God. And so what does it mean when we pray, hallowed be thy name? We are praying that all people would honor, revere, and love God. Now, if this doesn't make sense, I think there is something that will make sense about this. This is the opposite side of the coin of the third commandment. That help? Remember the third commandment? You shall not misuse the name of God. What does that mean? Because that's the opposite. The word misuse means to trivialize. People trivialize the name of God, and Jesus is saying, I'm praying that everybody wouldn't trivialize, but revere and love who God is. What does it mean to trivialize something? I was in Cooperstown a month ago. You know, I didn't go into the Hall of Fame, baseball, but I've been there before. 
And if you walk through the Baseball Hall of Fame, you have these lockers and some of the old jerseys. You might have Willie Mays and Babe Ruth, some of the great players. Uh, and, and people walk in and they have a certain reverence for that garb because those great players wore that garb. So I want you to picture this. There's the janitor. You know, he's cleaning up at night. And he's cleaning the glass and cleaning the benches and things like that. And he runs out of paper towels. So what does he do? Well, there's number three, New York Yankees, Babe Ruth's jersey. That's probably made of wool. That would be a great thing to clean with. So he takes it out of the locker and he sprays some Windex on the wall and kind of does this with Babe Ruth's jersey. You know what I mean? It's just a jersey. And yet on the other hand, it's Babe Ruth's jersey. What is he doing? He is misusing the jersey, right? He's trivializing the jersey. When you take grandma's old vase that has been passed down for generations and you go and you let somebody play with it in the sandbox, maybe a neat, what are you doing? You are trivializing something special. That's what's being warned about in the third commandment. When you misuse the name of God, you are trivializing the name of God. We're not taking God seriously. We're not revering and loving him like he created us to do. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, we are saying, may the whole world have a loving reverence for God. May nobody use God's name like the Babe Ruth jersey. May nobody use God's name like the vase, but value God in all we do. And that's what we're praying for here in Ridgefield, aren't we? We're praying our neighbors come to know Christ. We're praying that lives and hearts are changed. We're praying that a secular society that trivializes God at every turn, that thinks that God is either irrelevant or frankly a little bit dangerous, would be revered in the hearts and lives of people. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, that's what we're praying for the world. Creation restored. Again, someday, the whole world is going to be full of that reverence. We are leaning towards that day. Number two, that people would acknowledge the rule of God. Your kingdom come. God, when he created the world, Adam and Eve were ruling for him in the garden like priests and like kings. But God was the ultimate ruler and authority in the garden. That's the intent of the original creation. And we are praying that his kingdom would come. So let me just say this real quick. Um, Laura actually pointed this out in one of the songs. There is an already not yet aspect to the kingdom. We can do a whole sermon on this, right? When we talk about the kingdom of God, there's, you, you have to get both right. It's already here, but it's not yet in its fullness. Already, not yet. That's why you have verses that say things like, now we see darkly through a glass, but then face to face. There's something special now, but there's something really special in the future. Or there's this place where Paul says, he must reign right now until he puts all the enemies under his feet. Well, which is it? Are you reigning now? Or are you reigning when all enemies are under your feet? And the answer is both. Already, not yet. There's a sense in which the kingdom that God is ruling and reigning right here, not only in our hearts, but even in the real world, but yet there's a sense in which it comes in its fullness. If you lose this balance, your theology gets out of whack. That's why I say this, okay? Let me give you two errors. If you believe that there's no already and it's all a future thing, you, you, you have what's called an over-realized eschatology. You believe all the benefits of the kingdom are open to us right now. 
and you start believing it's God's will for everybody to be rich. It's God's will for everybody to be healed all the time. We start buying into this best life now kind of stuff where, where, we, where we have an over, we think all the benefits of the kingdom are ours right now. Paul actually rebukes somebody for this thinking in 1 Timothy and also he rebukes the Corinthians. On the other hand, if we say, uh, if, we, if, we, if we take the already and the not yet, or, or rather if we neglect the, the future kingdom, we become very defeatist, you know? Uh, we become very discouraged. You've got to have both. When we say thy kingdom come, it's both. There's a sense in which God is ruling and reigning right now, and there's a sense in which he is glorified in this future reign. And when we pray, we're praying for both. We are praying, number one, Lord, I pray that you would do some kingdom work right here among us. You would save people. People would glorify you. We prayed for social issues in our world. We pray for crime to go down. We do pray that neighbors would live in harmony. We want to see kingdom work done through the church and through the power of the Spirit. Now, at the same time, we are looking forward to the coming of Jesus. And we're looking forward to the day when he comes and makes all the wrongs of the world right. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. So we're praying for both. Last thought here, because I want to move quickly, is your will be done. Here we're playing that people would seek the will of God. So we have three synonyms here, right? Hallowed be thy name, praying the name of God would be exalted, your kingdom come, the rule of God would be real, and three, that people would seek the will of God. A lot we could say about the will of God. I'll give you three thoughts here as we, we round out this part of the Lord's Prayer. Start here. We see when Jesus says, pray thy will be done, it's telling us that our prayer life is not so much about getting God to do our will, as us getting on page with his will. Because when when Jesus says, pray thy will would be done, you know what's implied? What's implied there is, Lord, if I'm praying outside of your will, don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. Pray thy will would be done. You know? Uh, If you have kids that that play with Play-Doh, you know, they take the Play-Doh and they squish it into these little factories and out comes a star or a square or something like that. You are, you are molding the Play-Doh to something. And as we pray and we ask God to do his will, you know what's happening? Our hearts are becoming pliable to his will. They're becoming moldable to his will. Maybe in areas we don't even see taking place. So prayer is not us bending the Almighty to his, who our will. It's about us getting on page with the will of God. Number two, we can see that God uses prayer to bring about his will. He uses prayer to bring about his will. Sometimes we say things like, well, if God's going to do it anyway, why don't I pray about it? And we can say a lot about that, but I'll simply say, prayer is the God-ordained means of bringing his will to pass. He uses our prayers. He uses your prayers to bring his will to pass. If you read Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's in captivity, and Daniel gets a revelation from God, God makes a promise to Daniel, right with a timetable. Daniel, I will deliver Israel from the hand of the enemy, and here's when I'm going to do it. You know what Daniel did? He prayed. He prayed that prayer. Why would Daniel pray if God made a promise he's going to do it anyway? Because Daniel realized prayer is the God-ordained means to bring about his will. God uses you in prayer in that way. Last thing I want to say, something that's speaking to me this week. 
This is pride. The more you walk with God, the more you become appreciative that he only answers prayer that are in his will. Only. Uh, you know what I was thinking about? My daughter was, when she was three or four years old, uh, we had planned all week I was going to take her to, I think it was Walmart, and get her a movie. Get her a movie, you know? I don't remember what it was, Little Mermaid, something like that, you know? And she was really excited about the movie. And we got into Walmart, and we're walking around, and we got to pass by these chairs, these really cute little kid chairs, you know? And she becomes enamored with one of those chairs. And before I went to get the movie, I was warned about this. My wife said, make sure you just get the movie, you know? Don't get something else in place of the movie. And we walk by these chairs, and my daughter's eyes get really big, you know? like She's like, I want that chair, you know? And I'm like, well, you know, you can have the chair, you can have the movie. Which one do you want? And she chose the chair. Daddy, I really, really want this chair. You kind of know how this goes, right? Later that night, Dad, can we watch the movie? (laughs) And I says, you got the chair. And she's crying, saying, I don't want the chair. I want the movie, you know? And I'm looking at her going, I gave you exactly what you asked it for. And I remember my wife from the other room saying something like, that's the problem. You gave exactly what she asked it for, you know? And as I think back on that, I can't tell you how many times that's happened in my life with God, where I am praying for something that not only do I think I need at that moment, I'm convinced I need at that moment. And sometimes it's 10 years later. Frankly, sometimes it's 10 minutes later. And I'm like, oh, Lord, thank you for not answering that prayer the way I prayed it, you know? I look back over the course of my life. See, when we pray, thy will be done, you know what we're doing? We're making a confession. We're saying, Lord, not only am I frankly unqualified to run my own life, I'm certainly unqualified to run the whole universe. You are way more loving, way more powerful, and way more more wise than I could ever possibly be. And that's why we always pray, Lord, do your perfect will. Do your perfect will. We will conform to your will. I imagine if we went around through the room and got testimonies, not about the prayers that God answered, we sometimes do that, but about the prayers that God didn't answer, how many hallelujahs you would get after that? How many of you would say, Lord, thank you for not getting me that job. I didn't know that was going to happen. Oh God, thank you for not having me marry that person. That would have been a disaster. Oh, Lord, thank you for protecting me from a move I was about to make. God's way is wise. His way is perfect. I imagine that the disciples, when Jesus was on the cross, I tell you what they were, it doesn't say it in the Bible, but I know what they were praying. Oh, Lord, help him to get off right now. Help one of the Romans to go up and take the nails out and let the rabbi walk free. I would dare say not only did the disciples think that should have happened at that moment, they were downright convinced that was the best thing that could take place. But God didn't answer that prayer. He answered the prayer of Jesus. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. And Jesus drank it, dregs down all the way to the bottom of the cup. And I imagine after the resurrection, the disciples looked back and said, Lord, I just want to thank you for not answering my prayer at that moment. in doing your perfect will in my master's life. For I now see he died for my sins and was raised from the dead. You get to see that after the resurrection, sometimes after the event, but someday you and I will stand in glory and we're going to look back and we're going to see what wisdom there is in this prayer. Not my will, but thine be done.